Hello and welcome back to the Energy Flux podcast. I'm your host, Seb Kennedy, founding editor of the Energy Flux newsletter. And if you haven't done so already, head on over to www.energyflux.news and sign up for free email updates to get notifications of all future shows on the podcast and a whole lot of free content besides that. Um, now, I am delighted. This is a bit of Energy Flux history. We have um, our first repeat guest on the show tonight. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined by Rachel Parks, editor of Gas Matters. Hey, Rachel. Hello, hello. So um, we had a lot of fun talking um, first. And in fact, you were the first guest we ever had on Energy Flux, or I ever had. Um, and now you're the first one to come back. So thank you. Well done. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh it's good to be back. Thanks. Cool. Thank you. Now, um, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I thought we'd get Rachel back on again because, um, Rachel, you've been doing some sleuthing into the world of hydrogen and the murky world of EU policy. Um, so there's there's been a lot of stuff coming out from the Fit for 55 package and since then more uh, renewable energy uh, type regulations. So perhaps you could give the listeners the kind of high level view of of which bit of that you've been looking at uh, and then we'll kind of dive into the details of it sure yeah um well last year uh gas matters uh the title i edit um ran a, a feature series on hydrogen and uh back then it we was we just had the hydrogen strategy come out and there was a, there was a lot of high level uh targets and ambition but there wasn't really a sense of how any of this was going to be achieved and what that was going to look like. Um, and everybody I spoke to around that time just said, well, basically, we've got to wait for the regulation to come in um, because that's just being the EU. The, the regulation does actually tell you quite a lot. Then Fit for 55 came out and um, there was a lot more detail in that. But most recently, um, the gas decarbonisation um, proposals, uh, gas market decarbonisation proposals came out in December and that covers not only hydrogen, but it covers um, natural gas markets as well. And um, a lot of stuff to do with methane emissions. And um, there's a sort of, a, but and also biogas and biomethane. And there's a sort of fairly heavy emphasis on um, promoting hydrogen, um, especially hydrogen demand and um, ensuring that the infrastructure is there to service that demand as and when it comes online. Okay. Um, and so you've been you've been looking at the, the the infrastructure side of this. Yes, yeah. I mean, we've um, we do tend to focus a bit on um, infrastructure and gas matters. Um, uh, so a lot of our readers um, are interested in that side of things. Are either investors or um, or their TSOs. So yeah, that's, that's kind of our focus on it. Okay. All right. And um, and and so what what regulation is is proposed then for new hydrogen infrastructure? Because I know there's this kind of backbone proposed across Europe, right? The hydrogen yeah. backbone that the TSOs are yeah. all coming together to to build out. Yeah. Um. I, it's, I think it's important to um to note that the the, the backbone is actually um an initiative led by uh, the gas um, transmission service of, um, system operators. There's 12 of them now. They they keep adding adding them in. So that's sort of that's actually a, a private a private led initiative. Um, and just to give the listeners a bit of background, that's about 
um, repurposing uh, natural gas pipelines that might be um, obsolete come net zero and repurposing them as hydrogen pipelines. And the idea is that it's sort of it's um, it's built out or, or repurposed in stages first around sort of demand centers and then the demand centers get um, connected up again, all using I think I think it's something like 80 percent. Um, 80% of repurposed gas gas pipeline with some some new build um, hydrogen, especially hydrogen pipeline. And then there's a sort of a 2040, um, no pun intended, pipe dream where um, <laughs> they begin importing hydrogen from places like North Africa and, and Ukraine and places like that. So that's the European hydrogen backbone. That's actually different to what's being proposed here, which is in essence, about um, regulating the hydrogen, <laughs> regulating the hydrogen network. Um, when I spoke to people a while back about, you know, what the hydrogen network should look like, and how what the regulation should look like, what most people said was what the EU absolutely should not do is take the mature, liberalised, the, the model for the net regulation that they have for this mature, liberalised market gas market and transpose that onto hydrogen and it seems that that's exactly what they've done so um <laughs> so essentially we're talking about you know there's going to be this it's going to be fairly um you know you can pretty much do what you want up until 2030 um and then after that it's going to be sort of there's going to be quite strict um rules around unbundling third party access um regulated returns um yeah and it's and you know there's going to be sort of you're going to be required to um assess the infrastructure need every two years it's about stimulating and regulating demand and creating a dedicated hydrogen in infrastructure and it basically adapts the current gas market regulatory framework to hydrogen okay uh and, and how would this liberalized market work like what what is kind of liberalized about it which or like how 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 just, just talk us through that if you can uh that's quite a difficult <laughs> difficult question to answer i mean essentially i mean if you're if you're familiar with the gas market and and how those how those assets are managed so essentially you have um the tsos will have a regulated asset base and those assets um, have regulated returns, so there's there's a limit to the amount of um, profit that they the returns that investors can get on that, and they're allowed to recoup um, some of the cost of invest investment in that in in that um, in those assets onto their um, onto their, from their customers via you know from their shippers basically, and with, obviously that can then gets translated back to um, energy uh, their energy bills. Um, and then essentially that's that's the model that's being transposed over here. Right. So yeah. So it's saying you know you can earn maybe three percent return on the tariff that you're charging to hydrogen shippers using the infrastructure. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. And this is to stop profiteering from natural monopolies because they're going to create a natural monopoly by creating dedicated pipelines and compressors yes. etc. for hydrogen. Yes, yeah, and the idea is, yeah, that you you grant equal access to producers so that you know, and that's, this is where the unbundling comes in as well. So if you're a, you know, if you're a hydrogen producer that also owns the natural gas 
pipeline or sorry the hydrogen pipeline you might be tempted to just book out all the capacity and block out all your competitors and the idea is that unbundling unbundling all of that means that um not only of is production and transmission separate so they're completely separate legal entities which kind of reduces the risk of conflict in, in that space but it also means that you know you you are obliged to offer your competitors space on the infrastructure okay right yeah so yeah so that's how how things work in the gas space at the moment to stop mm-hmm. um too much market power from being concentrated in one company yes absolutely absolutely okay I mean, and and so and and go on no sorry you go on well, I, I was just wondering why why is this a bad thing that they do this for for the hydrogen sector? Is because it's a nascent industry and there needs to be a little bit of kind of monopoly power to get the thing going in the first place. That's that's absolutely right. I mean, if you think about how the natural gas, um, in fact, most um, the infrastructure, the energy infrastructure that we have today, um, electricity, natural gas, a lot of those were. Um, built by either state-owned monopolies or state-backed monopolies, and they did that because they responded directly to 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 need, um, as maybe rather than necessarily having like a really solid business case if that based on sort of twenty or thirty-year returns. Does that does that make sense? Um, and but this would this is more of a sort of trying to keep every um, trying to keep the, the playing field absolutely level for everybody and the people i've spoken to have the view that this is kind of this is going to cut some players out of the market and that it might it might um, stifle sort of innovation and there's also an issue where you know this is because this is this very much favors the tso's who have existing infrastructure assets say so we've got a natural gas pipeline that goes the length of Italy, for example, and do you want to repurpose that for hydrogen? Um, but that's not necessarily where supply and demand are going to be. So it's going to be sort of based on where. The, so the, 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 what it means is that investment is going to happen because it, it favours the TSOs and it favours existing infrastructure. Investment is going to happen where perhaps a TSO doesn't want to write down its assets, maybe rather than where green hydrogen is being produced or where um, there's a hydrogen cluster that's desperately in need of hydrogen. Right. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting to think that on the one hand, it's um, uh, it's it, it's kind of turning the screw a little bit on monopoly behaviour flourishing, but at the same time, it's it's favouring those companies who who are kind of natural regulated monopolies in their space who already operate these um, these pipelines across Europe. Um, yeah. It, 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 am I am I understanding that right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, it's it's not what the one thing that's really not clear from this regulation is what happens to um, existing hydrogen assets um, under this phase. It doesn't seem to be um, outlined very clearly in the regulation because there's a there's actually quite a lot of um, hydrogen pipeline, existing hydrogen pipeline up in places like Belgium and the Netherlands, where there's already quite well developed demand centres, and it's not clear. How whether those are going to suddenly be um, kind of <laughs> those those uh, places? I think it's um, I can't remember who owns them, but if they're going to suddenly be told that you know your your assets are now regulated assets, um, yeah. 
So I can imagine that's causing a great deal of uncertainty there. Um, and I think, you know, you just got to think about how um, investment cycles work. And if you're, I mean, 2030 is now eight years away. If you're thinking about investing in a new hydrogen pipeline that maybe connects a uh, supply center with a demand center, you're thinking, well, you know, in eight years, if I make this investment now, that gives me, I mean, let's say I it takes three years for the um, project, for the asset to come online. I've only really got um, five years of getting the returns that I want before that suddenly it's suddenly going to be regulated and the returns are going to be cut and you know and I'm going to be I'm going to ha be heavily regulated in how I manage the asset. So I mean I think there's a suggestion that it might it's going to stifle it could there's a risk that it could stifle investment further um, in these sort of early years. Right. Yeah. Because um, I mean these these hydrogen investments they're going to be quite capital intensive and um, not necessarily you know big money spinners um, because the yeah. cost of the fuel is, is is the inefficiencies are so great in producing the fuel and the cost of kind of containing it and shipping it is um is, is really quite great and so yeah to, to kind of then say well you, you you know you put all this all this capital at risk in these assets and then you can kind of only get a measly whatever it is percentage on top of that it's yeah hard yeah. hard sell yeah i think so and i think it's also you know there's all definitely been a a lot of benefits to having liberalized markets but you tend to only see those benefits when you've got a really well interconnected really liquid market with a lot of players and it, it seems a little bit like you're getting all of the sort of negative points uh, without necessarily any of the positives hmm well yeah that sounds a little bit like the eu commission <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay um all right. Um, well, and, and obviously, uh, you know, we're, we're in a very peculiar market at the moment. Uh, but I mean, well, yes, of course, these regulations are supposed to shape things for the next sort of 20 or 30 years. It's hard not to um, to, to look at that, um, not through the prism of what's going on today. And, and it, mm -hmm. you know, we have this, this energy crisis that just doesn't go away and um, kind of tightness in gas markets and you know, other energy commodities are going through the roof. Um the, you know, with wholesale prices doing what they're doing at the moment, which is um, being extremely volatile, um, it, it has much thought been given to the effect of high energy prices on investment in hydrogen infrastructure? Well, I've thought about it a lot. I don't, I don't know if that counts. <laughs> but, yeah, but more more um, than the EU Commission. Well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, or maybe that's not very good. I, I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, from the, the perspective of the Commission, I... There's nothing that I can see that has been um, said or done about high energy prices. And I, I, I mean, the Commission generally doesn't, in these kind of infrastructure spaces, doesn't tend to get too keyed up about it. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I think it's a little bit, the whole sort of liberalisation thing is a bit sort of muscle memory for them. I mean, I don't know if sort of market prices necessarily keep, EU regulators up at night. Um, I think the point is that for them is that there is just a market. I mean, I guess the question is whether um, these sort of sort of prices that we're seeing at the moment are having an effect on sort of high on um, hydrogen investment. I mean, have you do you have a sense that that's changing anything? Well, on paper, it definitely changes things. I mean, I wrote a piece in Energy Flux 
the kind of late autumn when the yeah, gas price was really, really kind of gathering steam. And um, just doing some kind of back-of-the-envelope calculations, looking at the cost of producing blue hydrogen and, you know, with with carbon, the carbon price and the cost of um, EUAs going up on the emissions trading system and then comparing that to the to the cost of producing green hydrogen and it is quite quite a hard comparison to make but um, like one of the headline findings from this work which I did with them um, uh, there's like a kind of mathematical service called key numbers and those figures were like well yeah with gas at you know twenty five dollars per MBTU equivalent or whatever, then actually green hydrogen is going to be more cost effective than, um, or actually cheaper, you know, the, the actual kind of end price of the, the wholesale price of the fuel will be less than, um, uh, uh, than, than making it with gas, which was quite, quite an interesting thing. Cause you know, everyone always says, oh, you know, blue H2 and um, blue hydrogen is going to be the stepping stone if you like to, cause it's cheaper and it's more ubiquitous and it's easier just yeah. to bolt on. And then we'll do green when it comes cheaper. And it's like, well, okay, but if gas is going to cost us an arm and a leg, then green hydrogen is going to be cheaper to begin with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the people I've spoken to weren't too too sure about that. But then I guess that's not, I think having a sort of sense of it is different to actually doing numbers on it. I mean, I think I read something recently that about how um, I think carbon prices have got to reach 140 uh, yeah, I think it's 140 euros a ton for gas to be competitive in the power markets. So you know, yeah. gas is <laughs> gas is not how you know that is not a desirable fuel right now. Um, I mean, when you say that they're you know they're going to be on parity, is that great green versus grey, or is that green versus blue? Um, that was uh, yeah, so that was green versus blue. Um, but there's a big caveat in that, and um, that is that. So you have to make a lot of assumptions to do these calculations, um, and the assumption on the green H two is like how much is the electricity costing? So it's like if it's mm-hmm. only really relevant if you have a dedicated production facility, let's say an offshore wind farm that's produced right. it's you know being built specifically to to then electrolyze water and 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 it's like and the other the other kind of really problematic thing about this is that yeah like gas is expensive and because gas is the marginal fuel in the power mix it makes the wholesale mm-hmm. power prices really high too so this wind farm let's this theoretical wind farm in the north sea that's producing hydrogen it's like if it has an option a grid connection and an option to sell its electrons directly into the wholesale power market then it would surely do that rather than selling them at an assumed much lower cost into the electrolyzer because mm. like the assum- the assumption on the on on the, the this calculation was that you know electricity would be sold into the electrolyzer for like i don't know like 30 euros a megawatt hour and of course if you look at some of the day ahead power markets then we've seen triple figures for like many many days on end yeah so why yeah. why would a wind farm sell at thirty euros megawatt hour when they can sell at one hundred and fifty? So yeah, the only time of... that they would do that, the only time that they would do that is if they have to curtail the production otherwise, right? And that's you know, I mean, that really is you are talking about you know under four thousand hours a year or whatever. It's it's not a lot. That's and it's not enough to make a business case for green hydrogen on its own. 
for a grid connection. No, and and, and, and and wouldn't it be crazy? Like, why would you be curtailing a wind farm when power prices are at 150 euros per megawatt hour? That's the market screaming out for more supply. Oh yeah, but so like the periods, well, yeah, yeah, the sure. periods of curtailment would only coincide with there being an excess of wind power when presumably power prices might even be at zero or negative. So mm-hmm. that, that yeah, yeah. then makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting one actually. Looking at um, considering what uh, an offshore an offshore wind farm that's not grid connected and what role that might play in the market. Because if you're, I mean, last time I was on this podcast, we were talking about energy price volatility. I mean, if you can convert electrons into molecules and then you can store it, I mean, there's an opportunity there, presumably for quite significant you know for playing the market for doing some price arbitrage it, it, it it's it's a different ball game isn't it yeah that's another way to look at it i guess you you know you you can leverage the peaks and the troughs mm. um and yeah and then like sell power back but the, 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 the you know the, the arbitrage has to be massive because the round trip efficiency of of hydrogen mm-hmm. and like electrolysis and then converting it back to electricity is like kind of 30 percent, is it so yeah yeah, I yeah. think it's even more than that. I think it's forty. Like and that's you know in sort of quite high efficiency. Um but fortunately for offshore wind producers, this is the new reality, apparently. I yeah, is it though? I mean I, I yeah, we haven't seen any any actual investment. There's so much talk around hydrogen around the assets to make it a reality, but yeah, yeah. like um, well have have we what are we looking at? Because um you know it, it are are we seeing any real kind of investment on this side? I don't think that we are, but just tell me, do you, have you seen much actual kind of putting their money where their mouth is? Well, um, well, money has not, money has approached mouth. I don't, I don't know whether it's actually at the mouth. I mean, the, the EU has some, um, some targets which are driving, um, it's driving a lot of like money towards hydrogen. Let's put it that way. So, in 20, we've actually got a, a target coming up in 2024, six gigawatts, which is roughly one um, one million tons a year of um, electrolyzed of hydrogen produced from electrolyzers. Right, this is all green hydrogen. There's no there's no blue hydrogen um, targets at all. By 2030, there's one. They want 40 gigawatts, and um, and that's it's equivalent to 10 million tons of um, hydrogen produced. Now, the, the six gigawatt target. There is 5.4 gigawatts of electrolyzer projects proposed, and they're mostly in Greece and Spain. Um, but the caveat to that is that many of, uh, quite a large proportion of that figure has not yet re- reached the FID and hasn't secured any um, offtake agreements. So it's all kind of in the pipeline, but is it mature? Very difficult to say. Okay. I'm, I'm amazed the, that any will have reached FID. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 2024 is, I mean, considering the hydrogen strategy came out in 2020, um, putting in, putting a 2024 target in there was very bold. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's, there's um, even more of a discrepancy on the 2030 target, but I mean, the consensus seems to be that, that in the long run, that would be easier to meet than the 2024 target. Okay. Um well, my my kind of overarching feeling on all of this stuff is that the the, the targets are all sort of hopelessly ambitious. 
um, yeah. and that nobody really expects this stuff to actually be delivered. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is, is the um, the 10 million tonne target for 2030 is almost exactly the same as the EU's current hydrogen production, it's grey hydrogen. So it, it kind of brings us back to that whole infrastructure question of you, you really do need to be focusing on decarbonising existing hydrogen supply and you need and and those those places sorry existing hydrogen production and those places are already fixed right it's like you know they're not really movable feet so the infrastructure needs to match that exactly and and um yeah like decarbonizing gray hydrogen that's got to be the beginning point for all of this stuff Mm. um before you start doing fancy things like dedicated offshore wind for electrolysis in the middle of the north sea and it's like well great now we've got loads of hydrogen what do we do i've got to get it to shore to you know like some hydrogen cluster somewhere it just Mm -hmm. seems extremely based on the extreme wishful wishful thinking really yep (laughs) yeah okay i mean that's interesting that that, yeah so the 10 million ton by 2030 that's you could just bolt on a bunch of um carbon capture units to the existing grey hydrogen demethane reformation units and that's your 2030 target done <laughs> without the need for a single electrolyzer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, the, the EU seems to have climbed down a little bit about blue hydrogen because it was extremely anti um, around the time that the hydrogen strategy was published in 2020. But it's now, um, yeah. it's now kind of introduced proper definitions for low carbon hydrogen and the sort of mood music coming out of brussels is a lot more um yeah a lot more amenable to blue hydrogen than it was so we'll see what do you think's behind that <laughs> um i think probably a hard dose of reality i would imagine i think i i suspect that the cost the electrolyzer costs haven't come down as quickly as they as they'd hoped hmm. um yeah because there was a lot of talk about electrolyzers crashing down like solar and wind have and mm-hmm. what what yeah. have you seen have you seen much in that space like much like any movement uh, at all in price uh no i think it's it's it stayed pretty solid i think um unless i've you know so anybody who wants to call in and um correct me on that because <laughs> I, I haven't actually i haven't looked i haven't looked deeply at that but that was my impression from sort of a preliminary look yeah, well, with inflation being what it is, then you know we're seeing the cost, the the cost reductions that we saw in solar and wind over the last decade being, you know, quite severely reversed. Um, it's mm-hmm. probably a short term phenomenon, but like with the kind of material costs going up, um, yeah. then I'd be I'd be surprised if any kind of complicated equipment machinery that's getting built mostly out of China at the moment is going down at all in price. Yeah, yeah, I would. That seems like a sensible um, assessment. Okay. Um, all right. Um, we, you've described kind of the, the like the hydrogen, the dedicated hydrogen infrastructure on the one hand, um, and the, the the kind of repurposing of natural gas pipelines on the other. Um, it, it, is there a kind of an indication of of what's most likely? To, to to be built out because obviously with the gas pipes already being there then there's there's a kind of an obvious cost efficiency by by yeah. just you know repurposing gas pipelines and then and then and then transporting hydrogen that way is that so is hydrogen going to take off as as kind of just as a kind of uh, a, a, like a token 
five percent maximum addition into into the, the gas mix um or are we going to see kind of dedicated hydrogen pipes being made out of out of gas pipelines well i think it's it will probably start with the former uh, with blending because that's that's the easy option and it's the the lowest cost option because there is i think it's a 20 percent at which the point you have to start making significant um invest more investments in the pipeline uh to make it hydrogen ready so blending is just you know if you've got if you happen to have hydrogen production at the end of a of a pipeline and you want to start injecting it in it's it's very very simple so i can see that being a sort of easy win um as for repurposing natural gas pipelines i think the thing to remember is that there are a lot of very motivated um infrastructure asset owners who um yeah who are very very motivated to make this happen i had a discussion with somebody the other day about you know what's the most like what's the best idea for integrating hydrogen into the um european gas network and i think the, the point of the the overarching point of the conversation is that it's not necessarily what's the best idea, but who, who's the most most motivated to make it happen. And I think you really can't underestimate um, the TSO's uh, motivation to bring the European hydrogen backbone or some form of it into fruition. Yeah, and I think that's what, what worries me most about this whole hydrogen thing is that it it becomes just... Uh, it's just regulatory capture, isn't it, by mm. by the vested interests um, mm. and TSOs who don't want to 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 have to face a kind of declining utilization rate for an asset which is supposedly worth so much on paper, and then they have to to write it down in capital markets. Yes, yeah, absolutely, and I think that also goes for blue hydrogen as well, because you know we were talking about uh, wholesale natural gas prices being so high. Um, that, but I think the thing is, is that when you think about who is producing, who is developing blue hydrogen infrastructure, and it's it's the IOCs, and the IOCs are already committed because this is existential for them. So I don't think they're going to let the small matter of natural gas prices, which incidentally they're also benefiting from at the same time, I don't think that's going to stand in their way. So while the economics might not look that great, um, if natural gas prices stay high i just think that the sort of strategic value of blue hydrogen for the um the companies that are developing it just is going to outweigh the economics a lot of the time yeah that's a really good point you make about um of course the same companies who are who are you know making huge sums on their natural gas volumes um are of course the ones who are going to be proposed supposedly producing lots of blue hydrogen so it's like, yeah, the, the the cost to them is not the wholesale price in the EU. It's their internal cost base, which would be much lower. Yeah. So yeah. actually that whole blue thing, where they're being cheaper than green, it's like you say, it's it's easy to kind of make, make some assumptions. But it, actually, if you have access to wellhead pricing yeah, of the gas, exactly. then your blue hydrogen could come out a lot cheaper. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously, I think there's an opportunity cost for them there because, you know, that's all money, you know, to, to compare to the offshore wind producer, the fictional offshore wind producer that we were talking about, I mean, they could be selling that gas into the market for a whopping great big um, profit. But you know, like I said, I mean, it's it's existential for them because I mean that that market isn't going to be there forever. So I think they see they see it as more of a kind of long term move. 
Yeah, and, and also, of course, we haven't talked about the da- demand side of things, like downstream, because there's no real certainty that massive hydrogen demand is going to spring up naturally in places like domestic heating or transport, where it's really struggling to make a, a, a case for its value proposition compared to electrification. So it's not yeah. like there's going to be a, a massive opportunity cost to kind of hive off you know, single digit percentages of your out of your natural gas production portfolio to create a bit of blue just to kind of yeah. keep that, that side of the the business healthy mm-hmm. growing. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Um I you know and I guess I I guess the IOCs haven't actually as well as far as I'm aware, they haven't done a great deal to kind of I mean they, they are invested I mean I guess this is it, they're invested in the clusters as well. So they're not they're producing hydrogen right next to the demand center. So, you know, I guess that's a, <laughs> that's the, that's the smart move, isn't it? It, it is. And I, I think if blue hydrogen is going to make sense anywhere, then it's, it's going to be in these industrial clusters where you don't have to transport it over long distances and all the kind of losses and costs that yeah. are incurred with that. If it's, if it's already on site, that's where it's going to begin. Yeah, that's the issue I've had with hydrogen uh, hydrogen pipeline transport for a long time. Because I think, you know, in order for that, uh, you know, those that calorific value, although that energy to be transported, it's got to be more economic or more palatable than producing it on site, and also more palatable than just transporting it as power. There's no reason it can't be transported as power some distance and then converted into um, hydrogen that way so you know it's got to it's got to tick a lot of boxes before you get to the point where you're literally transporting molecules which is a in itself a very inefficient process and costly process um yeah so it's it is it's a difficult business case i think yeah yeah it really is um Okay. Um, this is a live call, so if anybody wants to call in and um, ask any questions about hydrogen or the things we're talking about, feel free to uh, to raise your hand. Um, Rachel, just like one more thing, I we could chat about before I um, I let you go. Uh, the, the EU has these big imports targets, which you've uh, mentioned. So there's um, off the top of my head, is it is it f- like so forty gigawatts by twenty thirty? Is it half of that coming from non EU countries? You mentioned North Africa and Ukraine. Uh, no, no. So that's an additional forty gigawatts. So it's forty right, gigawatts. So for- yeah, yeah, forty gigawatts within the EU, and then forty gigawatts from outside the EU. Okay, um, and and of course, Russia is um, you know. Uh, it has um, hydrogen ambitions of its own. Uh, it's instructed Gazprom to look at, I think, pyrolysis um, mm-hmm. for for hydrogen production, which is a, a slightly left field one. I think that's called, is that is that purple hydrogen? Turquoise. Turquoise. I got my my colours mixed up. Um, yeah. How is is there any kind of like reality to this? Because you know, I think the EU is having enough troubles as it is establishing a, a kind of healthy bilateral relationship with Russia over gas. Is is the idea of Russia exporting hydrogen to the EU? I mean, what, just tell, tell me what you think about that. Well, it's it's a funny one that because um, on paper it doesn't really make sense, uh, but actually the Gazprom has got quite a few um, interested parties in Germany, especially around um, transporting turquoise hydrogen, and I I think I mean 
the the issue I think with pyrolysis is that the technology is still a little bit sketchy. I mean, it's I mean in terms of the actual technical um, robustness of it. Um, it's but I think what the, the sort of main thing with it really because I mean what so just I don't know if, if your uh, listeners need to sort of understand what methane pyrolysis is. Basically, you put the natural gas into a sort of um, furnace and you heat it to a very high temperature to compress it and then you basically you get hydrogen out once one end and you get carbon black which is like a sort of solid carbon out the other and the the, the big advantage of that is that it's it, while it does produce carbon it can be buried reasonably easily so I'm told it's much easier to dispose of and actually doesn't require huge amounts of landfill so there's a big sort of carbon emissions um advantage to that but i'm not sure about the efficiency of it and i think the issue that you're always going to have with russia exporting hydrogen is that it would just it's just simpler for everybody if you they just export natural gas and then that's used as for blue hydrogen production um i mean and in any case the eu doesn't seem to see methane going anywhere in the long run so i just i think it's my sense is is that I, that Gazprom is hedging a little bit on this, and it doesn't want to lose out market share. But I don't, I don't know if it's a serious proposition for a major market move. Hmm. Okay, but serious enough for them to build Nord Stream two supposedly to be hydrogen ready. Uh, supposedly, yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. I mean, I, I mean, what does I mean, what does that mean? They've they've not built the pipes out of steel, I guess. Um, I mean, at the moment, Nord Stream two hasn't even got gas flowing through it, so <laughs> good luck getting hydrogen in there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, well, that's 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 great, Rachel. Thanks, thanks for your time. Uh, enlightening as ever, and. Um, uh, yeah, I guess this is definitely one to watch because hydrogen, they, like I said, there's a lot of talk about it. Um, but maybe we'll at some point be able to talk about some actual investment decisions and uh, things yeah. being built. So that would be interesting. So um, uh, appreciate your time. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Um, tune in this time next week for another edition of the Energy Flux podcast.